Welcome to the Christchurch London podcast. This is a talk from our Stockwell service. To find out about upcoming talks at each of our services, or to listen to other talks, please visit ChristchurchLondon.org. Good morning, everyone. Um, so yeah, as Kat said, my name is Tim, along with my wife Jackie. We lead the service here. It is great to be speaking today. Um, if you've been around for the last few weeks, you will know that we've been going through a series on Proverbs, which has been incredible, and we'll continue on to pretty much to Christmas. Um, but we are taking a break from that series today. And we kind of do this once a term. As um, Jack's mentioned, we are one church that meets in five locations. Um, and one of the things that kind of ties us together is our preaching, which is why we all preach through the same series at the same time. But then once um, a term, we kind of come out of that to give some space to the individual services to kind of think about maybe some things that are more specific to their location or really just for me and Jack to talk about stuff that is on our heart. Um, and so we've done this a couple of times this year. Um, the last time uh, I did this, I was speaking about the power of our words, the power to bring life to people. And we want to be a community that does that, that brings life through the words that we speak. And I guess I kind of want to continue that theme today, but instead of looking at the power of our words, the things that we say to one another about one another, I want to talk about the power of our words in talking about God. And to do that, we're going to look at um, a chapter in the Bible from Luke's Gospel, Luke's chapter 8. Um, and in my own quiet times, I've been reading through the Gospels for the last couple of months, just a chapter a day. Um, I don't know if any of you guys do the Bible in a year. I've done that before. You get like four chapters every day. And that can be great, but for some people, and kind of for me, it ended up being like a tick box exercise. I need to get through my four chapters. And so I was like, I need to slow this down. So I'm just taking a chapter a day and reading that chapter three or four times. And as I read Mark, uh, sorry, Luke chapter 8, um, I read it maybe a month ago. Um, but as I was thinking about the talk today, I thought, this is something that I think that God wants to speak to us through. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to look at Luke chapter 8. Now, this chapter in the Bible is also found in Matthew's gospel, and it's found in Mark's gospel. Um, so the stories in this chapter are evidently quite significant for our understanding of who Jesus is and what he came to do. Um, and they're quite famous stories. Uh, at the beginning of this chapter, you basically have Jesus and his disciples going around the whole of Israel, preaching the good news, uh, teaching people, healing people. Um, and his disciples there is the 12, like the apostles, the 12 disciples, but also there's a group of men and women who travel around with him. And wherever they go, they're pretty much flooded. As soon as Jesus rocks up in a place, everyone hears about it, and they kind of bring the whole village or the whole town out to see him. And he's been doing this for a while. And at the beginning of this chapter, we kind of get this sense that he, he needs, or maybe he thinks the team needs, some kind of R&R. And so they get in a boat at one edge of the Sea of Galilee, um, which, FYI, is a lake, um, and they sail across from the Jewish side all the way to the non-Jewish side, to the Gentile side, kind of in, in order to get away, in order to be at a place where they won't have hundreds of people flooding them. Um, and I guess if you have kids or if you've been in church for a while, grown up in church, you will know the story of Jesus and the disciples in the boat, what happens when they cross the boat, and this storm comes. So we've got two girls and our youngest, Ariana, Probably for like two months, every night, what do you want to read? Jesus in the boat, Jesus in the boat. So we got to know this story pretty well. Um, but they're, So they're crossing the boat. Jesus is out like a light. He's so tired from all of the ministry that he's asleep in the bottom of the boat. And then this massive storm kind of comes out of nowhere. And the waves are crashing over. And um, it's about to swamp the boat. And the disciples are scared. And for the disciples to be scared, that's a pretty big deal. These are fishermen, a lot of them. They have spent their whole life on this lake fishing. They know how to handle the sea. 
And so if they are scared, this is a big storm worthy to be scared of. And so they're like, what are we going to do? And Jesus, this whole time, he is still asleep in the bottom of the boat. And so Luke says that they go to wake him up. Now, Luke doesn't say how they go to wake him up. I'm guessing they get Peter, because he's the kind of guy that would do this, to go and kind of shake Jesus awake. And they wake Jesus up, and they say, Jesus, don't you care that we are dying here? Like, we're about to die. What are you doing? Why are you sleeping? Don't you care? Do something. And then the most amazing thing happens. Jesus stands up, and he says to the storm, to the wind, he says, be still, quiet. In the Jesus Storybook Bible, it says that Jesus stands up and says, hush. Like he's telling off a naughty child. He just says, hush. And in a moment, everything becomes still. The storm disappears. The disciples are saved. And they are looking at him like, who is this guy that can do this? And Jesus says to them this really interesting thing. He says, why were you so afraid? Why were you so afraid of what was happening? Look. Jesus, pretty obvious why we are afraid. He says, why were you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? And implied in that is, do you still have no faith in me? Do you not trust me that I'm going to get you through this? Do you not trust me? Do not do you like, not have faith in the abstract, which when we talk about faith, we can think of faith as kind of this abstract thing. And it's not actually even at this point faith in God, in Yahweh. Jesus is saying, why do you not trust me? Do you still have no faith in me? And we're going to come back to that in a bit. And so they make it across the lake, and they get to the other side. And this is the side where there's not supposed to be any people. This is the side where they're supposed to be able to get off the boat and go and rest and relax. But then Luke says, almost instantly, they are confronted by a man who Luke describes as demonized as tormented by evil spirits. A man that has been so tormented that he can no longer live in community. He's been kind of driven from his community and he's living in amongst the tombs, um, in um, amongst the graves. And at this point, um, he has, uh, the, the villagers around him are so scared of him um, that they've tried to lock him up a number of times, but he's broken through. This is a violent man, a man who, of incredible, maybe supernatural strength. And at this point, he uh, is going around butt naked, like, like an animal. Something has happened to him. Some, he's been so tormented that his humanity has been stripped from him, that he has been dehumanized by these spiritual forces. And he kind of gets in front of Jesus. He gets in his face. And he says, what are you doing here, Jesus? I know that you are the son of the most high God. What do you want? So this man whose humanity has been reduced, there's something in him that recognizes that in front of him, there is someone who is more than just a man. And he says, what are you doing here? And then just like Jesus did with the storm, he commands these evil spirits to be gone, to leave, to free this man. And almost in an instant, there is change. Actually, um, in Luke's account, we see that Jesus commands them to go, and they put up this kind of resistance, and they say, no, we don't want to do this. And he says, please, don't send us away. Send us into that herd of pigs over there, which is weird, I understand. I mean, like... There's one thing that we can understand about Jesus having power over a storm, but then as soon as we start talking about kind of evil spiritual forces, I know that that, that's a hard thing for us to engage with within our culture. 
Jesus, um, Luke sorry, didn't have to worry about this. When he was writing the gospel to the people he was writing to, people understood that evil forces were a cause of suffering in the world. Not the only cause by any means. We see in the scriptures there are a number of different causes for suffering. But actually he recognizes that there isn't a cause of suffering. And this is something that we are not really comfortable with, isn't it? Like the idea that there are evil spiritual forces that can cause suffering in our lives. And this can feel a little bit, when we talk about people being demonized, actually in the NIV version it says demon-possessed, which I think is a really unhelpful term, because it just brings to mind stuff like the exorcist, doesn't it? Um, I don't know if I saw that when I was young, probably shouldn't have, and like people's heads spinning around and projectile vomit and levitation. We can think of like demon possession as that, as like Hollywood-style special effects. But actually, there's a reality of evil spiritual forces being able to get, in, get hold of us and actually strip our humanity away from us. And that is what we see with this man. But then Jesus, in a word, he sends them out, and the evil spirits go into this herd of pigs, and then the herd of pigs rushes over the side of the cliff and they all drown. Now, I know a guy, um, a pastor, 40 years in ministry, and he says the number one question, the most frequent question he has got asked in 40 years is, but what about the pigs? I mean, that, that just doesn't seem fair, does it? The pigs. And I could go into reasons why I think it's symbolic of kind of the Romans and the Romans being put out to the sea. They came from the sea, they've impressed the whole area, and the whole region is waiting for the Roman Empire to be put back into the sea. But actually, for me, I I have no real problem with this. Jesus sees the life of one person as more valuable than a herd of pigs who are going to get killed and eaten anyway. And I'm kind of okay with that. So we can kind of park the pigs for one minute and get back to the real thing is that this man has been completely transformed. This man has been saved. He has been rescued. And um, Obviously, the, the pig farmers are a little bit kind of freaked out by this. They run to the village, and they bring back the village people. By that, I don't mean the village people, <laughs> the people from the village. That would be weird, wouldn't it? The village people turned up. The people from the village come back, and they see this guy that they had known for years, Kind of the the crazy village guy, the scary village guy, the guy that they were uh, told kind of scary stories to their kids about, the guy that they were half guilty that they hadn't done more to help. He is sitting there now with Jesus, Luke says, in his right mind, just sitting as one of the disciples, sitting fully clothed, fully restored, his humanity, like physically, emotionally, mentally, completely restored. This is just incredible. And... The word that Luke uses here is the word sozo, which means saved. Actually, if you read the NIV translation, it says that the people all said that this man had been cured by Jesus. But that word cured is really a derivative of the word saved. He had been saved by Jesus. And I think this is just such an incredible picture of what is on offer for all of us because of Jesus, that we can be saved that we can be saved in kind of every way a person can be saved, that this is what Jesus came to do. We see in Matthew, in the beginning of his gospel, when uh, the angel comes to Joseph and he says, Mary's going to have a son and you are to name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Jesus is the Greek form of the Hebrew name Joshua or Yeshua. Yeshua means God saves. So right from the beginning, the kind of the whole point of Jesus was that he was coming to save us from our sins. 
And that is not, that's important. He didn't only come to forgive us from our sins, which I think a lot of us, like we think of Jesus coming to forgive us from our sins. And he did, but he also came to save us from them. And there is actually a difference, and it's important that we know both of these things. So yes, it is really important that we know that we are forgiven by Jesus. That Jesus came that we would know we are forgiven. In fact, actually, that is a more accurate way of putting it than saying Jesus came that we might be forgiven. Jesus came so that we would know we are already forgiven. This is a huge distinction. This has been a big distinction for me over the last few years, working out kind of what does it mean that Jesus came to save me from my sin, to forgive me from my sin. And I think that I grew up with this idea of kind of an, an angry God, if I'm honest. An angry God that needed something to happen in order for him to forgive me. That needed the death of Jesus in order for him to forgive me. That needed my repentance in order for him to forgive me. That's how I grew up. But I've come to realize over these last while that that's, that's just wrong. I think that is wrong. I think actually that can be quite damaging. Now, think about the prodigal son. So this is a story that Luke tells in chapter 15, one of Jesus' most famous parables. I mean, it is probably the story in the Bible that I have engaged with most over the last few years. It's a story that I've meditated upon, I've prayed about, I've thought about a lot. And let's think about what that story tells us. So we have a son who comes to his father and says, I want my inheritance, which is effectively saying to his father, I want you dead. I want your money. I want the stuff you can give me. I don't want you. Just hand that over. And then the father does. It says the son goes away into the far country and he spends all of his money on wild living. And he ends up poor and destitute and broken, dehumanized. This is an effect of his sin. He ends up in this place. And he thinks, maybe if I go back to my father, maybe if I can grovel and repent well enough, maybe if I've got the right words to say and I can say, it's okay, I know that I've sinned against heaven and against you, but maybe you can take me back as a servant. That is what he is thinking. And then we come to the kind of the climax of the story. Now, I remember going with Jack a few years ago to see the Royal uh, Ballet perform the Prodigal Son at the Royal Opera House. Um, and I'm sitting there, like, I'm waiting for the climax of this story. I mean, sure, I'm enjoying it. It's no Hamilton, but, you know, it's okay, and it's beautiful, and the dancers are very graceful, and the choreography is great, and, but I'm just waiting for this moment. I want to see how they depict this moment. I'm wanting to engage with this moment. And I don't know if you guys have seen the Royal Ballet perform The Prodigal Son. It is a part, like, it's great, but this is awful. The way they do this is absolutely awful. So they have, we've got a picture, I think. You can just about make out. This is the father. And as the son comes back, this is what the father does. He stands like this. That's all he does. He stands like stony face, completely unforgiving, completely cold. He stands there. And the son literally crawls his way across the stage like penance. He crawls away, and even when he gets to the bottom, the father still does nothing. And the son had to kind of climb up into the father's arms. And finally, you get the moment when they embrace. But the father is still looking like that. And I'm there thinking, what now? 
You have taken the most amazing picture of God's love for us and you have reduced it to an angry father who is kind of willing to accept us back if we crawl across on our hands and knees. And I think like that came from a particular culture, a particular time in church history that has bled into a lot of our understanding of who God is. Like, that is not what happened. I mean, next picture. This is um, a picture by Charlie Mackenzie. We have this in our kitchen. And like, if you want to see art depicting this, go for this. Like, he's got a whole bunch of sculptures and pictures. And there is something about the tenderness in this embrace. And the way Jesus tells it is you have the Father looking out. Almost like every day looking at the horizon. Is my son coming back? Is my son coming back? And then he sees him in the distance. And you know what he does? He runs to the sun. He doesn't wait for the sun to come to him. And he runs full power and he picks him up into his arms. And he says, I love you. You belong with me. You are home now. That is the message of the gospel. It's not that we have to kind of fight our way back to God. And if we are good enough, and actually kind of we can even think of our repentance as being good enough. If we can repent well enough, if we can say sorry good enough, if we can really show that we are sorry, then maybe, just maybe, God will forgive us. No, that is what, isn't what Jesus says. This story says that God is standing with open arms because he forgives us. He already has forgiven us. And actually the reason that Jesus came to earth to die on the cross to save us from our sin was because God had already forgiven us. That wouldn't have happened unless forgiveness was already present. And that's this incredible thing. So we are forgiven by God. I mean, this will change your life. It has changed my life knowing I am forgiven by God, that he is not angry with me. And he didn't have to kill Jesus in order to not be angry with me. That he loves me. This will change your life. But actually, it's not just about forgiveness of sin. It's also salvation from our sin. And we can often forget this part and just concentrate on the forgiveness. But actually, we also need to be saved from the effect that our sin has upon us. We need to be saved from all of the different ways that our sin kind of the personal things that we have done wrong, but also sin, sin as a power, a dominion that exists, a spiritual force that holds us captive, just like it did for the demonized man. I mean, that is, um, especially Paul, you find this, when Paul talks about sin in the New Testament, he's not so much talking about the things that we have done wrong, he is talking about the power that is over us, that is keeping us from living the life that we are meant to live, of being in relationship with God, of living flourishing lives. And so often you see in the New Testament referring back to the Exodus, and we see that what Jesus did referred to as what happened in the Exodus. And what is that? It is a powerful force keeping a people captive that they had no hope of ever rescuing themselves from, and Moses coming, and through the power of God, defeating that power and releasing them. And that is a symbol of what Jesus does, what he came to do, to release us from the power that sin has upon us, from the effect that sin has in our own lives, the way that sin kind of rips our humanity from us, dehumanizes us, takes us down spiraling paths, keeps us captive. See, Jesus' salvation from us is just huge. It is for every part of our lives. And we see this in so many of the stories in the Gospels. 
that Jesus' salvation is holistic. It's about every part of life. So we see this with Jairus. So after this kind of scene, Jesus heads back to the Jewish side. And when he gets back, Jairus, who's a leader of one of the local synagogues, he comes to him and he says, my daughter is dying. Please come and heal her. Heal there is the same word. It's from the root sozo, come and save her. And so Jesus goes on his way to save her. But then on the way there, this woman who has been kind of suffering from a debilitating illness for 18 years, she sees the crowd, she sees Jesus past, and she tries to push her way through. And actually, I had this amazing talk on this, and the reason that she does that, there's a prophecy in Malachi about when the, son, when the Messiah would come, the son of righteousness, when he would come, he would come with healings in his wings. And wings there is a Hebrew word, kanaf, and that just means corners. And so this kind of legend arose that when the Messiah came, there will be healing in the corners of his robe. And Luke tells us that this woman sees Jesus and she pushes through the crowd and she reaches out to touch the corner of his cloak, knowing that if she does, she will be healed. And that's exactly what happens. And what Jesus says to her, he, like, he stops, he recognizes something's happened, he stops everything, he finds out who this woman is, he calls her forward and he says, daughter, Today, your faith in me has saved you. Yes, it has healed you, but the word there is saved. This is what salvation looks like. And then you have Jairus, back to Jairus and his daughter. And Jairus' servants come and say, you don't need to bother Jesus anymore. Your daughter is dead. And I love this. Jesus looks at Jairus. He looks him square in the eyes and says, don't be afraid. Keep on believing in me. Your daughter will be saved. Again, that word, saved. And he goes, and everyone's crying and weeping, and he kind of pushes past all of the relatives, and he goes into this little girl's room, and he looks down at her, and he says, sweetheart, it's time to get up now. And he reaches down into death and lifts her back into life. Salvation. That is what salvation looks like. Well, then you've got Zacchaeus. We all know the story about Zacchaeus, don't we? The man who had robbed kind of a whole community, living isolated but very wealthy. And Jesus kind of picks him out of the crowd. and He says, I'm coming to your house. And they have this conversation. And then do you know what happens at the end of that conversation? Zacchaeus is so transformed from this one conversation with Jesus that he gives away all, like half of his wealth. He gives back the stuff that he has stolen. And do you know what Jesus says about this encounter? He says, today salvation has come to this house. You see, Jesus' salvation from sin looks like freedom, like the demonized man. It looks like physical healing. It looks like being saved from death, like the disciples were, and being brought back from the dead, like the little girl was. It looks like people being transformed from the inside out. It looks like the unclean being made clean. It looks like prostitutes and tax collectors who are kind of symbolized the people who are most kind of on the outskirts of society the most unworthy of redemption, being welcomed in, invited in. That is what salvation looks like with Jesus. And the incredible thing is that because of the cross, because Jesus has defeated kind of the overall power of sin, what was localized, an individual with Jesus walking the earth is now available to all of us. This is the salvation that we get to talk about. It is not just Jesus has forgiven us for our sin, although he has, and that is so important, and it will change our lives. But he has come to save us from the power of our sin that we can be different. 
that the world can be different. Because you don't need me to tell you that the world needs changing, doesn't it? We look around at our world full of division and poverty and chaos and violence, and we think, we need to be saved from this. We need a savior. And that is exactly what Jesus came to do. He came to save us. He came to bring new hearts and new life, restored communities, flourishing relationships. He came to restore the whole earth. I mean, and that is good news, isn't it? I mean, this is why they call the good news of Jesus the gospel. The gospel means good news. And this is our message. This is the message that we have for our friends, our family, our work colleagues, our neighbors, our communities, that Jesus, because he has forgiven you, has come to save you from your sin. But I guess we see in the Gospels that people's reaction to this is not always positive, is it? I mean, we we have the Pharisees, and their reaction to Jesus saying, I've come to save you, is, well, I want to kill you. I mean, this is strange, isn't it? Well, why is that? If he just had come to forgive them, why would they react in that way? Because actually he's come to save people from a power that is oppressing them, a power just like theirs. Jesus has come to save people effectively from them and from the elite and from the people who were oppressing, from the Romans. And so if you more identify with this type of power, a power of dominion, a power of oppression, a power of using power over people, then when Jesus comes and says, I have come to save the world from this power, then you're not going to really enjoy that. And so the Pharisees set out to kill him because of that. Well, then you have other people who just think, I don't need this. Like, I am righteous. I am fine. Everything is okay. I don't need anyone to save me. And so they're kind of offended by the very idea that Jesus has come to say, I have come to heal the sick, the spiritually sick. I haven't come for the well, I've come for the sick. And actually, he had come for everyone because he understands that everyone is sick. But if you think that you are not sick, then you'll just reject that. But then we also have this encounter with the villagers. When they come back, So like the pig farmers go and tell them, they come back and they find this man completely in his right mind. I mean, you would have thought that that would have been a good thing for them, don't you? Jackson and I have lived in this area probably for over 10 years now. And so we got to know and recognize some of the people that beg outside Stockwell Station. So you have Simeon, don't know if you know Simeon, he's the old Jamaican guy, plays a guitar with two strings, has the most incredible voice. Um, Sinclair, like a tall, skinny guy who always asks for change to get into a hostel. He doesn't realize we've had this conversation half a dozen times. I know he doesn't need the money for a hostel, but I'm happy to buy him food. That never goes well. Um, we, there's um, Phil, who used to sit under um, the cash points, um, and he'd been gone for ages, and I saw him a couple of weeks ago. He's got new front teeth. I mean, who knew? Um, and then, like, the saddest of all is this one lady who we've seen around for years now, who always has the same thing. I need to buy formula milk for my baby. But we know that she doesn't have a baby. It's just heartbreaking. And now, if we came out of Tokwachi one day and we saw any of these people kind of dressed in new clothes and washed and clean and talking to other people about following Jesus and kind of being for the flourishing of London, 
we would be amazed. Yes, but we would also be delighted. We want to know, what has happened to you? Like, who has happened to you? How have you got from here to there? But this is not what the villagers do. The villagers come out, and do you know what it says? It says that they are afraid. They are afraid of Jesus, which is an interesting reaction. Why is that? Well, it may be the pigs, like, they would have cost the community a lot of money. Um, is it that? Well, I don't think so. If someone costs you money, you get angry at them, don't you? You don't get scared of them. But this is what Luke says. It says the villagers are scared. Why is that? Well, I think we see their fear mirrored in the disciples' fear earlier. What was their fear? Jesus said, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith in me? Do you still have no faith in me? What was it faith in him to do? I don't think it was in faith in his power to do something, actually. I mean, there's a reason that they wake him up. They think that he should be able to do something. They've seen him do miracles. They may be expecting him to kind of pray to God and God to do something or kind of miraculously find a way through. I don't think they were expecting him to just stand up and like quiet the storm because that freaks them out. But they were expecting him to do something. So it wasn't fear in kind of, there wasn't a mistrust in his power. I think it was a mistrust in his goodness. Jesus said, do you still have no faith in me? Do you still have no faith in my goodness, my love for you? I said we're going to get across. I'm going to keep you safe. It's okay. Do you still have no faith there? And I think this is what's happening with the villagers. They have seen a demonstration of Jewish power. They are Gentiles. They live on the opposite side. They've seen a demonstration of the power of Yahweh, the power of the Israelite God. And yet because of their history, because of the history of conflict in the area, they don't think this power is going to be used for them. They are scared of the power of God because they do not trust the goodness of God. They think that maybe we're going to end up like the pigs rather than like the man. And so they ask Jesus to leave. They say, please go. And the incredible thing is that he does. He doesn't kind of get angry at them and say, no, do you, know, do you not realize that I am God, the creator of the universe? I'm your Lord. You should bow the knee to me. doesn't do that. He doesn't even try and engage with them at that moment. And I think that's probably because there's a mob of people at that moment. You can't engage with this kind of thing to a mob. There's, like emotions are really high. And so he just gets in the boat and he leaves. But he does not leave them alone. Luke says, the man who has been saved asked Jesus, can I go with you? And Jesus says, no. And why does he say that? He says, you are to stay. You are to stay and you are to tell your people the good news of what I have done for you. As he said, the good news of what God has done for him. Jesus, God, same thing. He says, you are to tell the people the wonderful news of what I have done for you. You are to go out into the area and say that the power you have seen on display is not a power that is going to be used over you. It's a power that is used for you. You're going to go and say Jesus loves you and he is here to save you from your sin. And I think that we see in the words of Jesus to this guy, Jesus' words to us as a community. I think this is what he's saying to us at the moment, that we are to go to our people and we are to explain to them the good news of Jesus. That we are to explain that there is forgiveness 
of our sin and salvation from it. You know, I think between us, we probably know hundreds of people, don't you think? Hundreds of people that we are connected to in some way. And just like this guy, I think Jesus is saying, we are best placed to tell them about a God that they either don't believe in, or they don't think has any power, or they don't think would use that power for them. We are best placed to tell people about him. And I know as soon as we start talking about this, there can be a feeling of, man, I know I'm just not doing this enough. We can kind of feel guilty that we're not showing our faith enough. And that is not my intention right now. I don't think guilt in this is necessary or helpful in any way. But I do want to, like, to encourage us to see that we have amazing good news. Good news that can transform people's lives. And how do we know that? Because it's transformed our lives, hasn't it? I mean, there's a reason that we are all here today. Even if it's just we're exploring, there's an element of there's something about this that is intriguing, or there's something about this that is life-changing. Either way, that is what we get to share with people. And I get that our stories may not be as dramatic as this man. I mean, that's an easy story to talk about, isn't it? The whole region knew who he was before he met Jesus, and they see who he is now. They see the before and after, and that is an easy way to talk to anyone about the power of Jesus. And I'd imagine most of us don't have those dramatic stories. I know that I don't. I grew up in a Christian family. Um, My parents say I was like three or four when I kind of like prayed the prayer. Like Jesus has always been a part of my life. I don't have a, when I was three, I was this bad, and then Jesus saved me from this life, and now look, look at me. I don't have that story. I can't point back to that story. It's not obvious to people, which means actually I need more relationship if I'm going to talk about this. I need to have built relationships of trust and depth where we can talk about the real things of life. I need to walk with people closely enough so they can see the way that I live and maybe ask some questions. I mean, that's the advice that Peter gives in his um, letter. He says... What does he say? Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Be prepared to give an answer for the reason for your hope. He doesn't say be prepared to kind of explain the finer points of doctrine or go through the whole of like the meta-narrative of scripture. He says be prepared to give an answer for the hope. And this assumes two things, doesn't it? It assumes that people are close enough to notice that you have a hope that you are in conversation with them, that you are able to express some of that hope, that they see you through the different kind of seasons of life. They see you go through victories and celebration, and they see you go through intense suffering, and they notice something. So it, it kind of presupposes that we have these types of relationships, but also we have the relationships where it's okay to ask, where it's okay to talk about these things, that we are not kind of coming against people with this kind of like this harsh kind of truth without love thing, but actually we're in conversation with people. And I know that this can take a while. Um, I was at a playground a while back with one of our friends, our two girls, um, their daughter, and we are just chatting about life. And at that point in our relationship, we started talking about some real stuff. And so she was talking about her partner, and she was talking about how like, he was pretty much just lost at the moment. Like, there's identity stuff going on, just feels worthless. 
um, like loads of stuff in his history. He's just like living with all of these things that are kind of like keeping him bound up, that are stopping him having a flourishing life, that are affecting him and his family. And inside, I'm just thinking, oh, if only he knew Jesus. Like Jesus can save him from this. If only he knew he was forgiven and loved unconditionally. It didn't matter what his dad did. It didn't matter what other people said. If only he knew that. And if only he was saved from kind of these debilitating things, like the habits he's got into. But, you know, I couldn't say that. I, I didn't have the relationship. We weren't at that point right then where I could say that to her. And actually, I didn't need to say it to her. I needed to say it to him. And we are even further away from that. And so something we're doing, it's like, how do I build a relationship with this guy where we just talk about normal things? Like at the moment, it's just we kind of like talk over our kids, as parents do often. Like the kids are playing, you kind of talk over them. I want to get to a point where we can have real conversations about this. Because if you go in too strong, straight off, I mean, that can leave a door shut. It's kind of like if you're on the first date with someone, at the end of that first date, you say, you know what, I'm in. I want to marry you. Let's do this. I mean, even if you think that, even if you are convinced from this one meal that you want to spend the rest of your life with that person, it's probably not best to lead with that, is it? I mean, that can just freak someone out. That can shut a door rather than open a door. And I think it can be the same when talking about faith. So often we think we have to get the whole thing in. We have to explain everything. This is our one opportunity. And it comes from a place of, if you only knew this, this would change your life. But actually, we have to walk through relationships. We have to develop trust. And I think that this is what God is calling us to in this next season. Actually, the week of prayer, part of this week of prayer is we want to be a people that pray for opportunity to deepen relationships and then speak to people about Jesus. We want people to come to know that he forgives them and that he saves them. And so we are going to pray for that. We're going to pray for opportunity. And so I really encourage you that week, if you can, set aside time, morning, noon, and evening to pray for this. Find some friends just for one hour in that week. Find some friends and get together and pray. And then let's be open to what God would do. Okay, one final thing. I think as well as going to our people, which Jesus told the guy to do, there's also something about crossing the lake. Like that's what Jesus did, right? He's on the Jewish side and he crosses the lake to the Gentile side. And I don't think it was just in order to get some kind of rest and relaxation. I don't think it was just to get away from the crowd. Jesus is always way more intentional than that. I think there is something significant in this, something symbolic of leaving behind the Jewish side and traveling over to the Gentile side. And in their culture, this was a massive divide symbolized by a lake this division between these two people. And before it was just about the Jews, but now Jesus is saying, no, it's not just about the Jews, it is all of us. And so he crosses the lake to people who are not like him, to non-Jews, in order to tell them that this message is for you too. And I think there is something for us in that as well. I think there is something for us that we are able to break social barriers, that we are able to travel across lakes in order to bring people into this one community of God. I mean, this is what the early church was recognized for. Um, one of his early creeds that they used at all their baptisms, um, you find from Paul, and actually it's so important, he writes this in three different letters. And he says, There is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female. 
This was kind of their clarion call. Like, this is what it now means to be in relationship with God in his church. No division. And I think for us, this is a hugely important thing. Because the good news of Jesus is the good news for everyone, isn't it? It doesn't matter about age, ethnicity, social class, sexuality, any other social division. The good news of Jesus is the good news for everyone. And I think, we think, we are praying for a church that displays that, that reveals that to the world. That actually says, look, Jesus is good news for everyone. How do I know? Because I've come to this place and everyone is here. It is not just for white middle class people. It is for everyone. And how do we do that? How do we display that? Well, I think this is going to be tough. We see when Jesus went across the lake, there was a spiritual opposition. There was a storm. Why did the storm come out? Ever thought about that, the reason for the storm? I think it's because Jesus was crossing the lake. This was such a huge thing that there was spiritual opposition trying to stop him doing it. And he had power to overcome that spiritual opposition. And so there is opposition to us doing this. There's the natural opposition of, we just like to hang out with people who are just like us. I mean, that's natural. Like, there's nothing wrong with that. But actually, we are to do more than that. Because the gospel does more than that. Jesus did more than that. And so we have to work out together how we're able to both celebrate and value the differences amongst us, as well as looking past them to the common humanity that we share. And this is a tension. We don't want to dismiss difference. Okay, for example, we're all now colorblind. We don't see color. That isn't helpful. Like, there is amazing color diversity in the world. We want to celebrate that, but at the same time, we don't want that to be a dividing factor. We want to see the humanity. And this is something that we are, we can't, we're in this. This is what we're here for. We are here for the long term, and we think this is going to take a long time. But we are here. This is what we want to do. Um, at the Leaders Weekend, and we'll finish, sorry. <laughs> um, Liz and Chris Oldfield did a seminar on kind of uh, being bridge builders. It was fantastic. I don't think it's recorded. We'll get them to do it again, or better still, invite yourself over for dinner and get them to explain it. Um, but one of the things that Chris mentioned in there is from 1 Corinthians 12, Paul is writing to how do we create university, uh, unity from diversity? And he gives this image of the body. And he says that there are two temptations here. One is to say, because I'm not like you, I do not belong. Because I'm not a foot, I don't belong to the body. And the other temptation is to say, because you are not like me, I do not need you. Because you are not a foot, we have no need of you. Two temptations that come when we're trying to build a diverse community. And actually, Paul says, both of these are ridiculous. Like, a foot can't say to the sand, because you are not a foot, I don't need you. There's something about needing people who are not like us. It's not just that this is a good idea. It's not just that this displays something of the glory of God, although it does. It's the fact that our community is less of a community if it is just made up of a whole bunch of feet. Like the body cannot do what the body is supposed to do if that is all that we are. And so we are in this, and we would say to us, we need to work out how to do this. And often, like as I've been reflecting on this, I do think there's a special emphasis on those who feel comfortable who feel part of the majority, who have privilege, for want of a better word, to reach out. Because actually, it is an implicit communication that we don't need you, which makes people think that I do not belong. And so actually, if we want to make people belong, we have to understand that they are needed. 
that they are just as much apart. I mean, the fact that we don't have any teenagers in our church, that's not right. Like, we are a body without a hand. I mean, we can do stuff, but we are a body without a hand. The fact that we don't have any elderly people the fact that this service doesn't look like the area that we live in. The fact that we don't have people from socioeconomic backgrounds that are different for us. Like this, this is not okay with us. And we don't think this is okay with God. And so I realize I've gone on loads. This is what happens when you don't script your talk. It's the first time I've done this. We'll see if we do it again. Um, <laughs> but like this, this is what we're here for. And so we would ask you, let's do this together. Let's work this out together because we think this is where God is leading us and it may be just a fantasy I'm well aware we could try this and it all falls down in like five years ten years time we're like man that's it's just too tough but we're not there yet we are not there yet we are still at the beginning and we still think this is something that we can go for and so I would just ask you particularly in this week of prayer particularly to be praying about this to be praying that we would find people that we can cross the lake to find people that we can bring back in, think about how we are as a community and welcoming people not like ourselves. Another problem of not scripting your talk, you just don't know how to finish it. So I'm going to finish it right there. Um, band, wherever you are. I think it will be good for us to sing about the goodness of God. Because this is where it all flows out of, right? Our understanding of his forgiveness of us, his salvation to us, that leads us to go out into the world and express that to others. And the best way for that to get grounded in our heart, one of the ways is to worship. So why don't we stand? Father, I thank you that you are a good and loving God. That you are a God who forgives us over and over, that welcomes us home that has invited us to come back with you. And I thank you for Jesus, that he came to break the power that sin had over us, to release us, to free us, to save us in every way it's possible to be saved. And Father, I just pray that you would sink that truth deep into us once again, that you would excite us about it once again. And Father, I do pray that you would give us all we need, the wisdom, the resources, the strategy, but most of all the heart to go out into this area our parts of South London, and to share the good news of Jesus. Amen.